This episode of The Swell Pod is brought to you in partnership with Kiln. Kiln provides flex office space for teams and individuals. Their all-inclusive set of amenities helps startups, creatives, and entrepreneurs alike get work done. Learn more about Kiln at kiln.co. Welcome to the Swell Pod again. <laughs> well, we look, we look, we look, like to look at three questions, don't we, Josh? Yeah. Um, we don't necessarily always ask them, but we're trying to seek the answers to those questions through other questions mm. uh, that relate to uh, challenging the status quo um, and uh, really trying to create something from nothing and changing the world or saving the world. Um, and so we, we're excited that you're here today. Uh, let's go through a bio. Did I miss anything? No, that was good. Yeah. So that's the Swell <laughs> Pod and we've got Jackie here. And yeah. so uh, Jackie, as the founder of She Place, Jackie is seeking to actualize a world where all women plus are valued, resourced and thriving. Uh, Jackie knows a lot about thriving. At the age of 32, Jackie became the, uh, the youngest woman and first female trader to make partner at Goldman Sachs. After leaving Goldman in 2002, Jackie spent almost a decade absorbing as much as she could about the wealth management industry before diving into philanthropy. Uh, she has served on many women-focused nonprofit boards, uh, giving through her family foundation. Jackie also co-founded a global philanthropic network called Women Moving Millions, through which members have collectively given more than $1 billion. While Jackie has always been an investor, she is committed to being ever more intentional in her efforts to champion the field of, of gender lens investing, as well as doing all she can to help women develop a healthier relationship with their financial resources. How did we do? Is Good. That, that was that great. It? All right. Perfect. I love that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. And I'm only 20. No, I'm 57. I'm really old, right? <laughs> no. And um, so we're going to talk a lot, I think, about your journey up to She Place. But I think what we would like to do is maybe just start with She Place. If you can just kind of give everybody an introduction to what She Place is and, and why you started it. And then we'll probably work our way back into the past and then kind of come back up to up great. to now. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, well, She Place is a relatively new endeavor. I kind of started it, oh my gosh, sort of formally a year ago, but it's really a continuation of something that I started with a group of other amazing Utahns, Utahans, Utahns. Um, we started a women's networking community about seven or eight, well now, 10 years ago, maybe closer, it was pre-pandemic, seven years, called Utah Wonder Woman. Amazing guy named David Parkinson, who had Method Communications based here in Park City, was noticing that a lot of relatively senior women professionals were arriving in Utah, um, a lot from other places, and were sort of seeking community with others, I would say, professional women. And so we started this women's networking group, and we would meet quarterly and have amazing speakers. And because so, mu so much of my life was based back in New York, I had amazing access to friends who would come and you know be like, can you do a talk or a book something? And so we had started to do these events quarterly, um, and fast forward seven years, um, we were seeing so much interest um, by women, not just professional women, but women in the nonprofit sector, at stay-at-home moms, you name it, to be in community with others that wasn't a silo-based, um, I would say, networking opportunity. So cross the silos and sort of be more um, generally open. And once the pandemic hit and we stopped doing live events for a couple of years, and I myself had sort of changed and had stopped going back and forth from New York where New Women Moving Millions was based. I sort of retired from that role. I started to really want to lean into what was going on here in Utah. 
And uh, a lot of people don't know, and this is a sad thing to report, but by national standards, Utah is one of the worst, if not the worst place to be female in terms of gender differences ranked across a number of um, areas, political representation, education, health, economic and financial well-being. And I really sat with that. And as someone who lives in Utah, who loves Utah, I was like, you know, this just isn't acceptable. And I'm not proud of the state in which I live and the state I love. So She Place was sort of born out of this desire to really lean in harder here in the state of Utah um, to try to understand the landscape of organizations that are there in many ways to support and lift up women and help address the issues of gender inequality in our state. But we really opened it up to be sort of a platform any self-identifying woman or male ally can join. And our goal over time is to really bring people together with this idea of women really leaning in to support other women. So it crosses a lot of silos. Um, we're a network of networks for some organizations. We provide an electronic platform for them to uh, self-organize if they want to. We chose this platform called Mighty Networks because it's women-owned. And, you know, our goal is just to help women flourish here in our, our great state of Utah. Mm. So um, it's, is it membership-based? Yeah, but no, there's no fee. Yeah. Anyone can join. There is sort of a, a, I would say, a code of conduct or expectations that you really want to be someone who is there to show up and support others. Yeah. And, you know, we will have offerings. We're starting to have events. Actually, we're going to have a big, we've had some launch events, but coming up this summer with the, our team has put together a women-owned business guide for, for Utah, primarily Salt Lake and Park City. So we'll be launching that. So we're just starting to have more and more offerings. Some of will be paid um, events, some will be sponsored events, but this is really a passion and an extension of mm. my own philanthropy. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, currently, are you based out of out of Kiln Park yeah, City? Yeah, Kiln Park City. Okay. Yes, we have over 400 people signed up. Anyone is welcome to join us on SheePlace.com and sign up. And it's not just for Utah. I mean, we're sharing resources. You know, our members are incredible people that are experts in their own fields. And, you know, our goal is just to provide a platform for people to share. But we are going to start to offer over time, again, events. We do a lot of virtual events. But more offerings. I'm personally passionate, you know, as soon as possible to get a crypto course on our platform nice. for women because I'm on that journey and we will not be left behind. That's right. I just saw that, that you're on a journey to get deep into like Web3, NFTs, Web3, crypto. blockchain, crypto. Yeah. I know. Shaquille is here with us where she is. She's over there. She's kind of our, and we have some experts, I think, in the room in that space too. But yeah, definitely. No woman left behind. Right, ladies? Hi, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No. Yes. And uh, yeah, so that's, I think that's really interesting. I would love to hear more about some of the events. But I think what we'll do is we really want to talk, I think, about um, your intentionality mm -hmm. to bring gender equality um, to Utah, even, or, or just your mission to do that. And it's interesting when we look back, you know, at re even reading your bio, right, that it's, it's consistent all the way across. And so I think what would be cool is to kind of go back and go back to kind of like what were some of the moments that kind of started you on this journey and, and did it start at Goldman Sachs or was it before that? And how did this become such an important mission for you that you it literally is the touch point every, every single place you go? Yeah. Thanks for that question. Yeah. I, I think about that. Like in some ways I would say, yes, it started at Goldman because I was one of very few females, but I actually would trace it um, back even farther, and this is a fun fact you probably dug up, but I was a, a teenage bodybuilder 
So when I was, uh, I didn't know that. Oh yes, I was Miss Canada bodybuilding champion what? a couple times. Yes, I'll pose later. No, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I won't do that. That, was the that would surprise be really element later on. Yes, you, you don't know about no, <laughs> oh, no another one. Yeah, there's a bikini under here. No, I'm just joking. That's not going to happen. Um, but yeah, you know, it's interesting because I. I do think about things like that are only sort of become a little clearer in hindsight. But when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17, back then it was Mr. C's Fitness Center. And it's about as muscle head of a gym as you can imagine in a small town in British Columbia, Canada. So I started, you know, at a very early age, you know, I was working, I, you know, I, I worked out like crazy. I mean, every single day for hours a day. And I really became comfortable in a very male-dominated space, <laughs> so I was well-trained to have a career on the training floor, you know, I think eight years later, but it wasn't that direct. I only sort of see that as a little bit of a connection, but it, it, what was true is that I think the reason I got hired at Goldman Sachs from a Canadian university, I went to the University of British Columbia, and I think, you know, people look for something that stands out on your resume and it would say Canadian bodybuilding champion <laughs> and every guy wanted to talk about that in, in detail. <laughs> so I think that actually really helped me get hired at Goldman had I not had that on my resume, you know, other things. I mean, I did well in school and all that I studied finance, but I think that was the thing that was interesting um, and got me hired at Goldman. Um, and then, you know, it was interesting too because I was the first Canadian from my, well, first person to be hired at New York Goldman Sachs. So it was not a path back then, this was 1988. So even back then, even though the analyst class, which I think is true now in Wall Street firms is probably 30 to 40% female, the nature of my job landed me on the trading floor, which obviously was very um, male dominated. And I ended up um, not going back to business school, stayed on post analyst and had a you know, very long career on the trading floor. But it's always, you know, it's interesting, I always, what was true for me, I should say, was that I loved my job. I loved having a career in finance. I thought trading was one of the most interesting jobs you could probably imagine as a financial professional, too. And I'd look around, and why aren't there more women here? Mm. You know, like, where are they? It's such a great job. And it was hard for a lot of reasons, but I sort of became my mission to really recruit for the firm and, you know, speak very as any opportunity I could about sort of careers in financial services. So I think that was the real catalyst. Yeah, that's interesting. So that question, why aren't there more women here? Is that so that it, it, it was true for Goldman Sachs when you were there, but it still rings true, I think, in, in every element is that you ask yourself that question a lot, I guess. Yeah, I, st I still do. I mean, I haven't I retired from Goldman 20 years ago. I can't believe it was that long, but I track the numbers. I think, you know, I obsessively collect research on anything related to sort of women and investing in women and girls. And the numbers, especially in the financial sector, um, have not changed that much. And especially as it relates to people who make decisions around how capital is allocated. So whether that be trading positions at you know, big firms or hedge funds or venture capital mm -hmm. firms. Um, so, and that you know, ultimately money is power in this world, sadly, still so. And um, the numbers a lot around that still haven't changed you know, very much. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But um, has it gotten a little better? I think so. But you know, again, hedge funds, private equity, venture capital, still is, you know, kind of not very diverse, yeah. to say the least. Yeah. What, what, um, 
what would you have changed if you'd gone back to those era, that era? Because you, you survived. In fact, you thrived. Mm -hmm. um, would you change anything? Were you yourself or did you have to adapt to behaviors that you didn't particularly want in a male environment? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And I've been reflecting a lot on that because I'm working on a, I write a lot for LinkedIn. I have this newsletter for LinkedIn. And I used to blog, I started blogging 15 years ago. And the early days of my blogs were just pure rants about the <laughs> patriarchy. Like I would literally like vomit on the page for like 22 pages. And, you know, it was my way of processing. Um, and I, I don't do that anymore. I kind of write more informational pieces, but this one I'm debating publishing is very personal about becoming a, a for Mother's Day when I was pregnant and I, um, I became partner when I was just became pregnant with my first child at Goldman and trying to figure that out. And I actually brought some books because I, I think the title of the book of the article will be The Price of Motherhood. Mm. And it's uh, a story I've never told actually about my own experience um, back then. And I, I think in terms of my own career, there might not be more. I, I really did, and I, I say this humbly, but also in my truth, that I did as much as I could in, to use my power to support um, my values, you know, at the firm, especially when it came to opportunities for women and people of color at Goldman. And thankfully, I do think, especially at the time, you know, they were trying you know, whether or not they were successful is another, but they really gave me a lot of opportunities, you know, to push. Um, if I were to go back and change things, and I think about this all the time, is in some ways, you know, I left in 2002, you know, 20 years ago, I had had my second child. It was hard. I was commuting. I was frustrated um, for a lot of reasons. I was then had a leadership role. I was in the executive office where, you know, I was on the committees that made some of the biggest decisions in terms of people and culture. And I just got so um, disillusioned, I would say, and um, disappointed, you know, and, and there was a leadership change. My mentor sadly died, you know, um, Mike Mortera, legendary guy that was in Liars Poker. And it was, everything was so hard with two kids, the commute, the pressure and, you know, we had, the firm had gone public, so we all already had a big liquidity event. So I think if I were to go back and, because I, I really did think I pushed as hard as I could um, or knew what to do at the time, but I think maybe if I would have hung in there a little longer, I, I think I would have, you know, I don't know, maybe be running the firm. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. Absolutely. <laughs> Probably not, but <laughs> one can dream. And who wants that job anyway? It yeah. sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, that maybe that takes us out of Goldman Sachs then. Because I'm interested, when did you, so I, I looked into a lot of the film background. Yeah. So the supporting of social awareness documentaries. Mm -hmm. I'm a big film guy. And mm. um, it's interesting thinking about, you know, from a gender equality standpoint, you know, championing these stories and things like that. But what was it? How did you get into the medium of film and realizing the potential of, of what that has as it relates to like social awareness documentaries, yeah. things like that. Well, it's actually interesting because there's the story and then there's a gap and then there's the continuation of the story. Yeah. The story was um, in 2000, 2001, I, I, as you know, people don't know yet, but I, I, I love Wonder Woman. I love the character of Wonder Woman. I have tracked her forever. Yes, we have a little um, swag, Wonder Woman swag. 
So I had had to give a, a speech for Take Your Daughters to Work Day. And I, this was, I think, 2001, I think, or maybe it was 2000. And I, even back then, I was like, where's the Wonder Woman movie? Like, you know, there had been Batman, Superman, Cat Person, Woman, whatever. But I had been very annoyed that there was no Wonder Woman movie yet. So I just, I ended up researching that and made a whole um, speech about kind of Wonder Woman as a for Take Your Daughters to Work Day. So then I started, I had an idea, which I still have, whole long story, for a Wonder Woman movie, which of course now there's been two, but this was back 20 years ago. And, and it was sort of the idea, and I, I, I couldn't get rid of it in my head, it was just stuck as this idea. And then I actually decided to quit Goldman. I'm saying, I'm going to quit, I'm going to like start a production company and do this friggin' girl superhero movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I kind of did that. Like, it was the catalyst, like, this story, this change, the narrative, the power of character, and especially superhero, it kind of grabbed hold of me. And anyway, I ended up quitting. I didn't obviously do the Wonder Woman movie, though that would have been really cool. Um, but I did leave and have a film production company, and we worked on something for a while, and finally I had to, I had a recording studio, too. That was <laughs> equally stupid. Um, but anyway, so that was sort of this where I started to get more creative and writing. And I kind of let that go for a little bit until I moved to Park City and got very involved very quickly with um, someone named Geraldine Dreyfus, who's a very famous producer based in Utah, and um, got involved with, with Impact Partners, which is a film investment group. And then I got on the board of the Sundance Institute, and I served there for a number of years and was introduced to so many primarily documentary filmmakers that were doing... Uh, films on important subjects that really mattered, like The Hunting Ground, Invisible War, Heart Girls Wanted, were three of films. But we probably invested in about 20 or 30 different documentary films over the um, that time, um, and really women-focused social issue documentaries, because they just believe in the power of story to change hearts and minds. No, yeah, it's amazing. And... Um... So, you know, the, the, I guess the supporting of those stories were, I, you know, was there anything that you kind of that stood out to you, I guess, from from all the films that got made, all the all the documentary filmmakers that got made, all the stories that got shared? Is there anything that I guess, as you think about, you know, that you took away from that, that you that you that you maybe infuse into everything else beyond that? I know that's probably a really big question, but the, the idea of um, potentially championing those stories. Right. And. And in order to, I think, ultimately, you know, continue to strive on this mission that you're striving for around gender equality. And is there, I guess, is there anything that you kind of took away from that? Anything that you try to infuse into maybe even She Place or, or anything else? I don't know if that, yeah. that's a tough question. I, 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 sort of. I mean, I guess how I would answer that is, and I'm trying to, my biggest life lesson right now at this post-pandemic, post a lot of things kind of coming back into the world is just to slow down. Mm. And be curious about other people's stories. And I think that is ultimately the power of film and especially of documentary film because it just sits with a narrative for a while. And you get often the opportunity to meet people, you know, that you wouldn't have the opportunity to meet with the patience of, you know, sitting in a dark room or, or your comf comfortable couch um, just listening to people's stories. So I think that's at the essence what makes good especially documentary films. So um, I am really, in, I'm interested in unpacking my own story a little bit more, especially now, 
um, as I get older and I, I think I shared, you know, I lost my father a couple months ago. So I've been sitting a lot in our own family story and just having to write about him and thinking about him and holding his memory in my heart. So I, th I think film, I think also helps you connect with your own story and realizing everyone's story has, has value. I like that just from a, yeah. the list, you're talking about listening and observe, <coughs> listening, observing, just being really, really curious. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what, I guess one of the biggest lessons that have come away from that. Just for a moment, Josh, I know we want to go forward, but oh, yeah. going back, um, you, you, your parents, your dad, uh, like pre-bodybuilding, and I'm interested to know what, what really drove that. Like, Mario. Was it? <laughs> His name was Mario, and he was a bricklayer, bodybuilder. Go on, tell me driving more. boyfriend. <laughs> yes. He introduced you, go on, tell me. To bodybuilding, yes. Really? Yes. So you didn't, I mean, you did, back then... I mean, that actually helped you. When you look back, that, that moment that you decided to really invest time into that helped you stand out, right? Yeah, for sure. But you didn't see that at the time. Uh, no. Um, it was just simply at the beginning, I can do this, though. Uh, how about back to, like, your childhood? Um, what did they give you in the way of helping you be intentional and challenge the status quo? My parents? What comes to your mind? Freedom. Tell me more. Oh, you know, it's it's so interesting because I, again, writing this story now, you know, what I'm really interested in writing about is sort of working moms and the narrative around women and what women can and can't have and what is often this paradox, you know, um, that's often presented or it's just how often it feels, especially if you're a working professional woman how and you're a mom, how, you know, those things can't go together, you know, in a way that's that allows women to feel actualized and healthy and happy. Um, and when I go back to my childhood, I mean, again, I'm reading so many interesting books on this right now, but I realized that my parents just provided a very safe place. I mean, my, both my, my, my first generation college graduate, like my mom, my, my dad dropped out of school when he was, I think, in eighth grade or something. And my mom did a year of business college. But, you know, it was just a very regular, normal, you know, safe beautiful upbringing, you know, big family, big extended family. And I think most of what, you know, and again, I talked to my mom and I'm so grateful for her and my dad is that I just, they let me have the space to just go after what I was interested in. And I didn't have, we didn't have a lot of financial resources, but when I showed a commitment or a passion, I was a horse equestrian rider too. And, you know, they found ways to support that. And I just had so much freedom. You know, and I, I think about that a lot as a parent, especially, you know, I have older kids now, but um, they just were so amazing um, as parents. And I just had a very safe place to grow up where I could just pursue what I was passionate about. They're just lovely, amazing people. So cool. Any, any, um, any memory, a, a memory that they supported you pre-bodybuilding, anything that you did that they believed? Because you, what you're saying is they yeah. really believed in you. Yeah, yeah. If you, as long as you show commitment. Any other things come to mind? Uh, yeah, just them all, always showing up. You know, yeah. like, it was weird for them. You know, like, obviously, I was starving. My mom kept trying to, like, shove food at me all the time because yeah. you have to be, you know, not eat very much. Um, mm. But they were, no, I don't know anything particular. They were just always there. You didn't have any singing talents back then? Oh, no, not I'm back not. then. Are you trying? <laughs> I know not. where you're going with this question. <laughs> I'm not trying to do I it. I know where you're going. Well, maybe toward the end we'll talk about that. If anyone no singing talents, no. Well, we'll talk about yeah. that toward uh, the end. Yeah, okay. 
as a hook. Um, but no, I mean, the only other thing I was going to say, um, I hope I hope I can word this right, but we, we have a friend, uh, Colleen, don't we? Um, and she, I think, for a long time, didn't feel like she could be herself in the workplace. Um, she had to you know, compete with, whether it's a male environment or just whatever the environment was, um, she couldn't be herself. And the one thing, she, she was a very strong leader, um, but the one thing she felt like she couldn't bring was compassion mm -hmm. and love. The word love wasn't like, I can't mention this. And now, uh, uh, now is a time when actually that's maybe more acceptable. And she decided intentionally, I'm going to make that my story where I go next in, mm. in the next corporate that I'm going to be in. Um, and I think that relates a little bit to even your article about why no Wonder Woman, right? I mean, oh, you yeah. talk about the balance between, I'm not going to be able to do it justice, but, you know, the, the leadership strength and also compassion. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if there's a question in there or not, but uh, any so other? I, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's about you know, kind of around the idea of changing, potentially even changing cultures. Like, because yeah. you're, you're seeing a shift in that, yeah. I think pretty greatly in, mm. in businesses as well. Like mm. a shift in cultures to just, I don't know, maybe provide, maybe even it's the freedom, Advice, yeah. the freedom to continue being more of ourselves. I, I, I honestly know we're not there. But I, I think is that is that maybe kind of where you're going? And, and are you seeing anything like that? Maybe even within your own community, potentially, um, yeah. an additional freedom of people being able to be themselves in that culture uh, of authenticity, potentially. Are you seeing that embraced. as a trend? And is there, do you have any advice to anyone uh, that's trying to be more themselves and bring their strengths to the table, their superpowers? Yeah, you know, I, and I haven't worked in a corporate environment for a very mm -hmm. long time, so I don't know mm -hmm. in that way how much has changed. I know when I walk around a space like Kiln, right, mm -hmm. you see how people are dressed and they have dogs and, you know, like if they're, it's just, it feels like they're bringing more of their mm -hmm. whole selves to work, you know, versus, you know, when I had a career, I mean, you literally had to wear weird clothes and nylons, like who wears nylons anymore? Like you guys probably didn't wear them anyway, but ladies would be like, we're pantyhose, right? I, maybe it's a Canadian term, but like there were so many social norms that were just meant to make you feel uncomfortable. You know, like workplaces were often just really uncomfortable. Um, so I'm not sure from that perspective how much has changed. What I do know and what interests me is you know, one of the things I do now is I'm an investor and I tend to invest in companies around things that I'm interested in and culture change and things around what I would say culture um, related sort of trainings. And I, you could say diversity and inclusion training, but it's not that's horrible. And people want to vomit when they hear that now, I think a little bit too, because it just has been used for so long to not result in anything that people are frustrated, mm -hmm. you know, with even language around that. But, you know, a, a couple of companies, for example, this one I'm invested in, it's called Translator Inc. And it started by a trans woman. Uh, I met her actually a couple of years ago at a really interesting event. Serena Williams and Whitney Hurd, who founded Bumble, decided they were going to do this convening in California, invite investors and entrepreneurs and just mix people up for a couple of days. And I ended up meeting um, this woman named Natalie Egan, who had just started this company basically to do culture training technology. So, you know, obviously I invested with her and we've been tracking her company for a number of years. We just had a catch up call. So I kind of asked her that question, you know, you know, how, what are you seeing? Like, what's the demand? And what she said is, you know, the demand for what we offer is just skyrocketing because I think in the workplace now, because there is such a competition for labor, 
people realize, employers realize that the power has shifted from them to the employee who chooses to work, you know, for you. So the idea of how do you really create an environment where people want to be seen, because I think that is something important for all of us, and how do you hold that for a company and create conditions of which, you know, you, you can help people be their full selves and create more, you know, policies and practices um, when you're still up against a very old school management team that believes you're lucky to have a job here, right? So there's a lot of that happening. And what I am encouraged by is then Seed and Spark is another company I'm invested in that does use the power of film to um, present issues to lead to discussions around culture. So I think there's such, and those types of companies I think are really exploding now because I think there's, as you said, there's something I think that has shifted, should continue to shift, and the nature of work is shifting. So I think it's just very different from when I was at Goldman 20 years ago. Yeah, it's especially, uh, you can see it like really heavily as post-pandemic, right, where now even in a lot of corporates, everybody's working from home and you saw this big, this big kind of tension and this struggle between companies and employees saying, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm going to stay home. But you have companies that are trying to do their RTO and, and get back to office. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's so much more to that, but I think that's really interesting to hear. So um, in regards to a lot of the companies that you invest in, you know, um, so what, what kind of companies are you looking for as you're looking to, to, to support certain, certain companies, certain leaders? Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of, I have an amazing woman who works with me now, well, a whole bunch of amazing women, um, that Rose Maisner, who is helping me specifically sort of create much more, I think, strategy around both our direct investments and our, and our funds. Um, but I currently have about 20 companies um, that I've invested in starting, I guess, 20 years ago. And one has been, one's exited, um, and it's one that I think speaks to my passion, which is financial education. The company was called LearnVest, and it was founded by someone named Alexa Von Tobel. She dropped out of Harvard to start this company back in, well, 2009, 2010, and she sold it um, about five years ago to Northwest Mutual. And now she's written a bunch of books on financial education, and now she has her own fund called Inspired Capital. Um, but ones that are that are generally speaking, founded by women or self-identified because they get such a small percentage overall of capital. Ones that have a mission, you know, are some, you know, I'm not probably going to invest in a sneaker company, even though sneakers are awesome. You know, there has to be a bit of a social mission. And if it's, especially if it's oriented around culture change, around um, fi finances, my biggest investment right now is a very similar company, financial education based in Switzerland um, called Smart Purse. So their their goal is to financially empower women everywhere, but with a focus now on Europe. So I would say fintech is where I'm most interested. Um, but then I end up meeting people and just falling in love with them <laughs> and being, I have to invest because you're incredible, you know. And it's I'm not, and it's it's getting a little overwhelming because I'm now one person, two person um, in terms of the directs. But we've been very intentional in the past year of identifying first-time emerging women and people of color fund managers that do pre-seed, seed, early-stage investing. So we've basically identified almost 100 funds, believe it or not, um, and we've invested in 10 of them that are just absolutely extraordinary managers. And 
just because of time and energy, we're sort of focusing a lot more on just identifying funds now rather than direct investments. Mm -hmm. But every once in a while, one will sneak through that I fall in love with. And if it's fintech, it's <laughs> the door is open. If it's fintech, yeah. What and just that's is that your background? Is, yeah, just is, with Goldman, like you know, it's sort of what you said in the intro. Like you know, my passion is women and money, mm. women, money, and change. And I think you know we have this amazing collaboration going with our newsletters with a cartoonist from the New Yorker, mm -hmm. and one of we co-create cartoons, and we're working on a women and money cartoon book. And one of my favorite ones um, that we co-created is with a therapist. And there's a woman sitting beside like a dollar bill. And, you know, they're looking at each other like this. And the caption is, you know, the therapist says something like, you have to understand you're in this together. <laughs> and I love that because I do think that money is a tool. It's not a, you know, end game. But I think the world would be a different place if um, if everyone was more intentional around aligning their you know, financial resources with hopefully values for a better and more just world. And I think especially for women for which oftentimes because of um, choices, because of family, because of non-choices, because of inequities that still exist, um, work, pay, maternity leave, you name it, you know, you often end up as a woman with less and being financially insecure. And I think the, that's just at the core of who I am is someone who wants to help women become more financially empowered. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, I want to ask about what, some advice that you might give about being intentional for other, mm -hmm. other people who are looking to support. Uh, but it's because it's so interesting because so money is a tool, but then also as I look at stories, think about the money, the stories, and the community, right? There's these really important pillars that it seems like you've built this really strong foundation around, you yeah. know, that, that kind of, you kind of navigate within at all times. But I guess, you know, so for, for other people who want to be more intentional about those, whether it's companies, startups, uh, individuals, that how, how can they be more intentional? What should they be looking for? Um, any, any, any thoughts or recommendations there? Just with, with respect to anyone and their financial resources, you mean? Or around so investing in particular? Yeah. Intentional about like your target audience or the problem you're going to solve. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Just in terms of being intentional around, uh, so like for instance, you're you're very focused on, uh, let's say, uh, so, like with your with your documentary, social awareness, but also there's a there's an element of that you're also supporting a lot of women startups, mm -hmm. right? Women founders mm -hmm. and, and women women companies. Um, so in terms of maybe along the, along the lines of those missions potentially. So if we're really striving for gender equality, um, maybe, yeah, I guess if we're trying to be intentional there. What have you learned about continue to... yeah, being more intentional about that? Not yeah. just yourself, but for others. They're yeah. like, not sure where to help, yeah. Yeah. where to focus on. What, how, what, have your, what are your tips around being more intentional? Is that... yes. Yes. No, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Well, and I think people are generally good. You know, I'm on that side of the equation. I don't think people and generally show up any day wanting to cause harm to anyone, or, you know, if you've given the opportunity to help someone, you probably, generally speaking, would. And I, so I think that um, when it comes to intention and awareness, I think the first piece is just calling yourself into greater awareness, um, and especially, obviously, when it comes to money. But, you know, even for me, it's been such a journey, and I think my philanthropic journey has really helped me around that, is trying, trying to be much more aware of my own privilege. I mean, obviously, the past five years, if nothing else, um, has brought, I think, a bit of a, an awakening amongst um, a lot of people just to, to be much more aware of how they show up and how they're using... I don't know if that's my... Sorry. 
um, how they're using their power, you know, and so I think that's a big one, you know, just to even start out with, um, especially if you have resources that mean you can invest in companies or, you know, have a lot of um, just purchasing power, but just, just financial power. Um, and I think that, you know, I've spent a lot of my time in, I would say, the high net worth women's circles. And generally speaking with Women Moving Millions, it's, it's a community of women philanthropists primarily that are looking to or already have, you know, funded organizations that primarily focus on females. And, and it is to right a financial wrong, which is that, and it's true in venture capital, but even in philanthropy, when I started, you know, in, in that circle, you know, uh, it was lots of studies, I obsessively collect research, you know, less than 15% of philanthropic capital even found its way to specifically support women and and girls, despite being half the population. So a lot of, I think, I think there's a lot of good intentions when not coupled with awareness result in a lack of action. Mm, yeah. And I, so I think about, okay, self-awareness, where are there inequities? Can I see them? Am I aware of how I'm showing up and what power and privilege I have that I'm coming into that space? And how am I not assuming I have all the right answers and what change do I want to affect and who's there to help me do it? So I think, I don't know if that's an answer to your question, no, but yeah, that's great. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do, but I think first you have to be so willing to challenge your own set of assumptions about how good of a person you really are versus what is the good I can do in the world if I really tried. Yeah, yeah. Slightly connected to that. Do you remember... Um, Chewy Chong's work at Microsoft, um, which, and he's a you know a leader there, looks at data bias and trying mm -hmm. to say, let's start looking at the the, the data that like the the, the non-users of a product, the non-users of a fund, um, who's not even coming to the table. Um, and that will throw up like new opportunities for where actually someone might be underserved. Um, I just like that, just at that point around just looking. You know, you usually just say, well, let's go and look at how people are currently using it. Let's look at people that aren't using right. it and they're not there. And they're, they're probably in another country and they probably don't even know about this opportunity for funding or yeah. whatever. Um, do, wh what is your target audience right now to look for those, those opportunities? Is it, is it the U.S.? Is it Utah? Is it... What, what are you, For me other, personally? Yeah. Well, gosh, um, more U.S. Just because mm -hmm. it is hard, harder to invest abroad if, mm -hmm. you know, unless you go through funds, um, which I have a couple. But um, I've ma personally mainly focused mm -hmm. in, in the U.S., mm -hmm. but that's just because I think there's just so much opportunity. And I, I love the opportunity also to get to know people. But um, I do have a few companies that are mm -hmm. in Europe. Yeah. Good. But I you would, just said something I just yeah. want to tag, just yeah. another film, because mm. I should put out a list. Uh, quite a few years ago, I, I did um, a guide to investing in social issue documentaries. So it was meant to, I mean, now, of course, with Kickstarter, and there's still so many platforms where you can do micro investing. But for the philanthropic community, it's, um, it's still, I mean, it's more popular now. But 10, 10 years ago, the idea of funding social issue documentaries, and most of them are philanthropically supported because there's no real business model in um, creating a documentary, but in it, 
Um, and I have, think I have it on our She Plays on my personal website just as a resource. We've, we want to update it. But I had a list of like favorite documentaries. And just to the point that you were talking about this embedded bias, um, there's one called, and it came out last year by an amazing filmmaker called Shalini Katana called Coded Bias. I think it was two years yeah. ago. And she looked at basically how AI, but you know, how this next generation of technology, if not being super mindful, um, based on, again, lack of awareness, is creating, embedding bias in our everyday experiences. And we hear about a lot of stories about facial and vo voice recognition software, for example. But, you know, that just is a film that sort of anchors behind the point of, you know, if you're the creator and you don't bring a lot of awareness yourself or create a space where people representing different perspectives are not actually making the product that you're going to embed that bias right in what you're creating. That's a great point. I did want to ask about she money. Um, quite a few yeah, people yeah. asked me when I was talking about yeah. Jackie was coming in. Um, but where do you want to go? That's yeah, perfect. Then, yeah. Yeah. What is she money? Uh, and what is the mission uh, of that and, and beyond, you know, just this year, but the next few years for she yeah. place or she money? Well, that's what we're thinking about. So She Money started just as a newsletter. Um, I write a lot. I've written a lot on LinkedIn as a platform just because you can self-publish. You guys know it's so easy to share. Everyone's on LinkedIn. So I started it as a newsletter, and it still is. So it's a subscription newsletter through LinkedIn. Um, but now we're really thinking about it as its own sort of business model. So over time, we want to have books. Um, I still love physical <laughs> books. I might be the only person who buys books anymore, but... I love them. And so it'll be books, guides, um, hopefully course offerings, and probably a content platform, maybe just an aggregator, because the reality is there's so many amazing people doing amazing things, um, and it's hard to find. So if I can use my platform to bring awareness to folks that are already doing amazing things in the space. But um, we hope to have events. I'd love to have um, our, uh, the company that I'm invested in in Europe, um, Smart Purse, has hosted um, in Europe these things called money rallies. And it started virtual, but they're basically women and money events. Um, but I'd love to do something like that here where they, it's not just like how to save, how to invest, what's an ETF, what's a stock, you know, what, why crypto, whatever. But really talking about your own money stories to talk about sort of values um, behind money to talk about money as it relates to major events, whether it be marriage, divorce, <laughs> um, things like that. Um, so it's probably going to be events in the future as well, and maybe a community. Um, we already have She Place as a platform, so we didn't want to create something different, but we're going to start to put much more financial content into the She Place platform. Great. Can I, yeah, I want to ask a question about, go back to crypto, actually, based off of kind of where we're at, I think, in the conversation. I would love to know, so based on, maybe you're early in the journey on this, but how do you see what you're doing currently uh, and, and, and crypto kind of working its way into its space? Like, what are some of your early learnings? Like, how do you see uh, crypto kind of influencing uh, how you might be working, how you might be investing going forward for the next couple of years? Yeah, I'm still really trying to figure that out. I mean, what I know for sure is, you know, money is worth, you know, the value, it's, its ability to store value or be a medium of exchange, right? And 
you know, I am kind of, obviously we're experiencing a lot of inflation right now in the U.S., and I've traveled to countries like Zimbabwe where someone gives you, literally the bill says $5 billion on the bill, and it's worth nothing. So I'm, and having a background in finance, and, you know, when you study money and, um, you know, Weimar Republic, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, in other places, you realize, you know, that, that, currencies, um, especially if not attached to some sort of monetary and fiscal accountability, you know, is, is a very, is a risky asset in and of itself. So I'm kind of not, I'm not totally in the camp like crypto Casey, if you've ever listened to her, you know, there's a certain crypto people that actually fully believe that crypto is going to be the only way, you know, in the future, because there's no actual accountability, you know, even for the US dollar, let alone um, you know, currencies that are less, you know, big. Um, so I'm not quite in that camp. So I don't know what an allocation should be to crypto. I think the science behind Bitcoin is fascinating. There's a tremendous argument to be made f for having Bitcoin. If you have a diversified portfolio, have some Bitcoin. Um, you know, when it comes to all the social tokens and NFTs and you know, all of that, like I was speaking to Shay and, you know, I'm getting every woman's community on the planet seems to be dropping an NFT and I still can't figure out how to get a, get a meta, whatever it is, Shay, meta wallet minting thing. So I'm like, you know, Seneca women is like dropping the NFTs and I'm like, I'm missing it because I can't mint and I don't know. And they're texting me and my phone's blowing up and I'm so scared that I'm going to like lose the password. You know, so I, I'm still, I think there's such a big gap between those that get it and are doing cool stuff and the rest of us who, well, a whole bunch of people that know it's going to be important and the technology is so fundamentally, and blockchain technology is so fundamentally interesting. And then there's the accessibility piece. And so I think we're, you know, there are interesting people that I follow and start to, um, listen to and i'm going to go to that cryptopia yeah. conference are you going to be there okay we'll be there um so i want to learn and i'm really interested in DAOs. really interested in how you create communities that have their own economics so i don't know i'm just i feel like i'm just talking i'm throwing out buzzwords i don't really <laughs> no, know anything but it's i think it's so interesting it, really interesting. Yeah, it's super relatable too. Like I think we're a lot of us are in the same boat. You know, it took me forever to set up the MetaMask, right? Like yeah. It took, it took me I mean, a, I've got Coinbase yeah, and I've yeah, got yeah. some Ethereum that I own through Grayscale. I don't even know what I'm doing, but yeah. <laughs> I'm dabbling. Yeah, absolutely. We actually had um, Brendan Dawes, who was our first guest ever mm -hmm. on the podcast. He creates NFTs, uh, but the, we but when we talked to him, it was like right before NFTs were becoming huge. So we talked to him about data art. He he produced art installations for Sundance and stuff like that. Mm. Really cool stuff. But it was right before NFTs became a, a, like a massive thing. And all of a sudden he took off and he's doing really, really well in London. And I don't know. It's, it's, it's a crazy world, these, these NFTs. And I don't know. It's where is the value is an interesting question. And I don't know. Anyway. Well, we are getting close yeah, to Q&A yeah. from our audience because I know you've got questions. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, this has been fantastic. I was I was going to ask you the last one about crypto. Do you have you who do you know? Which women do you know that run crypto companies? Have you met many? Well, a couple. Um, yes, we reached out to actually the team a while last fall before they blew up the Women of the World team. So it's one of the 
biggest sort of NFT, women-focused NFTs. They're based in Italy. I can't remember where in Sicily, I think. Um, so we've met that team. Sadly, I didn't buy one of those because that would have been really nice, but I couldn't figure out how. I was so lame. Um, but I'm invested. I've really tried to find a couple mm -hmm. of funds. Um, so I'm invested in something called Awesome People's Ventures, which is Julia Lipton, who is a... Um, she just closed her fund. Um, and there's a, another one I'm looking at. So there, and, and then there are a couple companies. Um, Nifty Lux is one of them that we've spoken to. And oh gosh, um, there's a really cool one who does virtual clothing. I know I'm looking at Rachel, you might know. Um, anyway, so I, but, so I'm, I don't know these people. So I'm, I'm, I'm in two funds. Um, but sadly, again, I'm, I'm invested in a blockchain crypto fund of funds and they identify the best blockchain crypto managers but they have to be have their minimum fund size is like at least i think 50 million so and they're all men they're all men so i'm really looking for managers that are and i found two so far that i like and i think are amazing managers that are women managers in that space but i wouldn't even know how to vet a company in that space i just mm. don't know enough that's why i'm focusing on funds yeah, very good. Well, thank you so much. So we will, while, we're, while you're asking questions and Josh will bring the microphone to you, uh, we're going to figure out how we're going to give this stuff away. We might have Wonder Woman questions. See if you can answer from the film or something. We'll figure it out, but we're going to give you some of these things. Um, and then maybe we'll have some type of talent show at the end. <laughs> he wants me to do my cherry we'll, wrap, just we'll, so you know. We'll see. There might be a... There might, be a, there might be a song on there. There might be. Uh, I'll do it. Okay. Sure. Fantastic. Any, any questions? What questions do you have? Hi, I'm Camilla, like vanilla. And Kelly and I work together at High Top, as well as Rachel. And Kelly and I actually went to a women's luncheon a few weeks ago at Kiln. And these women were talking about their experiences working in Utah. Mm -hmm. And they were saying how hard it is to feel like they're being their authentic selves at work and to feel like they can get ahead if they don't play the work culture game, specifically a work culture dominated by men. I think you guys touch on this in, in your questions, but I would love to hear your perspective and your advice for how you, you can be an authentic self at work. Um, one, one, one example is this woman said, I'm a very passionate person, and my boss says that that's actually a bad thing. So what would you recommend for women in this situation, specifically in a male-dominated work culture? You know, it's so hard because I feel like the answers to those questions can be so micro, you know? And so I don't, I don't know how I would answer that, honestly. I'd be curious how... how what showed up in the group for how people were answering that question. Because, you know, I think that at the end of the day, every organization does have culture that is very much dictated by who's in charge and what is permitted and acceptable or reprimanded or not. You know, there's so much bystanderism to bad behavior that it becomes the norm pretty quickly. Um, so I think... It's, a, it's such a balance. Like I always joke with my son, you know, he's like, ah, people should be their authentic self at work. And I'm like, what if you're authentically a total asshole? Like, should that be okay? So what does that mean to be authentic? 
you know, so I think there are norms and behaviors and expectations. And I think a lot of the language has sort of opened up the idea that everything should be permissible to talk about. Like I listened, I can't remember if it was Tim Ferriss or someone did a podcasting podcast about like complete oversharing, you know, how much is too much. And I'm a, I'm a sharer. Like I tend to wear my heart on the sleeve, especially when I'm going through something tough, but you know, for others makes them completely un uncomfortable, you know, and I know a lot of people now, and we're having this language that are neurodivergent, they're autistic, they're on the spectrum. And, you know, they're a, a lot of oversharing and stuff can make, you know, be very, very create absolute discomfort for, you know, certain types of people too. So I, I think there's a difference between um, not necessarily having to be a different person, but knowing boundaries of like, how much I can bring and how much I can't. And if it's, if it's, if I'm getting pushed back to who I am at my core person, such that I can't be comfortable at work, I don't feel like I like coming to work and I don't have anyone to talk to or share to, to help navigate that, then it's probably the, not the right place, you know, but I, I'm, I don't know if that's an answer, but I, my heart is, my heart is there because I think it's so hard to not, love where you work and want to be comfortable and feel like people respect and value you. So if you're leaving things in the closet or get slapped when something that's so true for you shows up and it's, it's disrespected, that's just really hard. And I don't know, I think a lot of people suffer in silence around that. And then if you can't talk, if you don't have a good boss, you're kind of hosed, you know, bottom line, I think. Is that, I don't know if that's an answer, Camilla. You have an answer, Josh? Yeah, no. I'd be curious. No. <laughs> it's a tough one. Yeah, honestly, but leaders do set a, a, a large influence on culture, I think, more than people realize. Yeah. Um, it's careful, I think, carefully looking at what the company's values are, what your value, yeah. well, sorry, what your values are first, what the company's values are, and what the leader that you, that you, you know, might be working with, yeah. uh, what their values are, and push as much as you yeah. can to make that aligned, yeah. and if not, find somewhere else that, that that's more aligned but what I what I just to your point on Utah like I've never worked in Utah as a professional person but I will say that it within she placed conversations even amongst our community members Shay you can speak to your experience or I don't know if that's mine um, we hear that a lot a lot especially women of color in Utah you know um, where you're the one and only, or again, there are norms and there are no checks and balances or complete lack of self-awareness around how comments around when you're going to have kids or if you are or not or married or you don't need to, you know, like the types, types of comments that would only hit, likely hit females in the workplace that are not caught or self-edited. And, you know, there are organizations and I think and my goal would be over a time too, with she placed to help bring companies like Translator and others to do culture work um, into organizations with Utah because there is no way companies are going to grow and scale here without attracting and retaining talent and creating workplaces where people actually love to work. Great question. Thank you. Um, I guess you just mentioned a little bit about what I was going to ask you, because it looks like when you said Utah was like the, the, one of the states that has the worst place to for women to work. I was like, whoa, I like tripled 
feel like like a punch in my gut because first of all I'm a woman second of all I am a woman we call her a minority and I still have accent even if I've lived here in the US longer than I lived in my native country so um do you have any like on your indexes of your um, in any book or any of your or suggestions or anything um for someone like me um I raised the children and went back to work and um and uh, something that would help me or help people like me <laughs> um to rise up yeah well well, well that's a big question too I mean, I, I think so much depends, again, uh, I think community is, and that's another thing with She Place we're trying to create, and I'm curious where, I don't know your professional affiliation or sort of what your support group is or whether you have folks in your own industry that you spend time with, but I really think um, community helps a lot in terms of navigating, especially work life, and if it's complicated, you know, and especially if you don't have, I really do believe, like, when I was at Goldman, helped set up our very first women's networks, our very first um, gay and lesbian networks, different black affinity networks, because there really is power together to have shared experience. And the benefits of large companies are they probably care more <laughs> or because they have to attract and retain so much more talent or more likely. So I think depends on what your you know, career and what you're interested in. You, know, you may or may not have access to companies that are actually committed to making sure that they are mindful how you may have being a woman of color, particularly in a state like Utah have particular experiences. Um, but I think it, it, honestly, it makes it harder. I think for people that are not in the minority, whether by sexual orientation, by gender, by race, you know, you have to be so much more thoughtful about where you work. You just do. And it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be when you walk in to say, oh my gosh, okay, I'm going to be the 99th employee. And, you know, is there someone who, around here that has my lived experience in any way, shape, or form. Because if you don't, it doesn't mean these aren't awesome people that can be the most kind and generous and lovely people, but we are naturally drawn to people who look and are like us. So, and so I think it just makes it more challenging. And I just hope that enough companies, big or small, are just doing the work to really try to make great workplaces. But We'd love for you to join She Place. We'll we'll talk more about things like this. But um, yay, okay, yeah, because I'd love to hear about what your experience has been, has been um, here in Utah. Oh, well, thank you. And I I brought them because I've been I I just this one just came out, and I just love the title. And I started it this morning. It's called. Ambitious like a mother, why prioritizing your career is good for your kids. <laughs> so it just came out um, in April. And I, as I said, I'm writing this article. I'll give it to you, Rachel. Um, and I just think it's really interesting because I've been researching. I kind of did a Google search of books around sort of women, work, and motherhood. So this is one that came out that I'm leaning on called The Price of Motherhood, Why the Most Important Job in the World is Still the Least Valued. And this was written, I think, in 2007, basically saying, you know, we live in a country where 
you know, we don't have um, ERA passed, let alone paid maternity leave, affordable childcare, everything. So it's, it sort of takes a look at how we revere mothers and say it's the most important job in the world. And then when this is one of the countries that does the least to support working mothers. And this other one, which is still a fan favorite of mine, is called The Feminine Mistake. And it says, this is, this is a book every mother should give to her daughter, will inspire a new generations to celebrate the promise and the power of being a woman whose first line of defense is herself. So I'm, these are all books around sort of this idea, especially coming into May, um, thinking about motherhood from a financial and economic point of view. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it gets into intention and money and sort of the, the what is sort of at my deepest core and passion is knowledge and community can inform better decisions. And, you know, and to me, this idea of, especially as a woman who has been blessed financially, but has always struggled to figure out how to quote unquote, not have it all, but have it all is, you know, we have to be in this together because it's only in, in being in it together that we're going to really navigate our way through in a very healthy and hopefully happy way. Wonderful. I think we're out of time, but is there one more question? I know Mick Hagen's just walked in the, and I'm, I know you've come for the, the singing with Jackie. I think he came from the popcorn. Did oh, you the... get access to the popcorn? <laughs> okay. Wonderful. Hi, Nick. Hi. So I know you've done a lot of incredible philanthropy and I'm just curious how, you know, how do you think about philanthropy in terms of strategy and impact and, you know, where you're going to deploy your resources? Like, how do you think of giving and the strategy around it? Maybe you've already covered no, this. No, I haven't talked late. about that. That is such a good question, actually. And what I've been thinking a lot about, because I'm kind of lost. Like 10 years ago, I would have had an answer that would have been this and this and do this and this. Now I'm like, oh, I don't know what actually makes a difference. You know, I'm kind of a bit disillusioned um, personally on my journey. I think part of it is because um, I just think change is hard. <laughs> it's just so hard. And I, I've been on the board of so many organizations and I've gotten to know like for a decade, that's kind of what I did full time was, you know, talk to nonprofit organizations, understand their mission, you know, raise money for them. Like, and, you know, it's just, it's just really hard. And it, fundraising and philanthropy has become such a machine and so much money, time and effort goes into just raising the money rather than doing the work. It's like politics in that way. That's, you know, it's just so much money to actually try to get into office to make a difference. You know, everything's a money machine. So I'm kind of disillusioned in that way. But I'm also, so I, if I were, if I had to pick a philanthropist to model, I would be like Mackenzie Scott right now. Like how cool is this woman who is a multi-billionaire who is doing core research on basic missions of organizations and is just writing checks to support their missions and is giving game-changing gifts that gives them the run map, the runway to actually multi-year gifts to actually execute on their mission. So I think there are a lot of amazing nonprofits, but I think, you know, we've made philanthropy in and of itself a career path. And there's something that's really getting lost in that. Um, but for me personally right now, what I'm really interested in is race, racial justice issues, criminal justice reform, and um, empowering grassroots organizations. Because at the end of the day, I think people um, in need, you know, that are on the front lines of problems are the best able to solve them. So I'm not into figuring out what works for me. I'm interested in understanding problems, especially in Utah right now, we have some pretty big ones. Um, and just funding, you know, organizations to 
to do the work. But my interest in terms of buckets, areas, I still love film and social issue documentaries especially. But, um, yeah, I'm just those are the areas where I'm doing some research now and I really want to try to lean into. That's awesome. Spencer, you want to close this out? What, with the song? No. Well, yeah, well first of all, if anyone stops... If, if you I think get... everyone who asked a question should get a pick a yeah, swag. Absolutely. So who asked the first question? Oh, yes. Do you want to deliver? Yeah, what do you want? Camilla, you pick. I don't want to... Okay, well, here are our offerings. Wonder Woman stickers, little she cards, which are pretty darn adorable, a Wonder Woman notebook, or a kiln t-shirt. Yay! I think we'll do this. Okay. Yeah, the she cards. There we okay. go. We're giving some prizes away for our listeners. I think Nick needs one of these too. Rachel, I think you asked a question. Here I you get so. these. Is this Nick? Ready? This is a, yeah. Oh, it's Mick. I said Nick. I knew it was Mick. You don't. Okay, who was here all the time? I, I think. Mick, all right, ready? I think Mick Jamie, should have I'll a Wonder give you Woman one. notebook. <laughs> Jamie gets one in the back. Anybody want a kiln T-shirt? Okay, I'll, we can just throw it. it. Okay, I'll throw it. <laughs> well, thanks for coming, everybody. Oh. Well, thank you. So, uh, hang on just a second. Okay, all right, fine. Voting from our audience uh, to hear Jackie give a rap to her favorite, one of her favorites. Oh, look at that. Okay, but I, there's I no have, pressure, Jackie. I have, to put, I have to put this into context, okay, <laughs> before you play. Do you have the instrumental I, I version? Do. I do have it all. Okay, so I'm. I love rap music. And I'm kind of a ham. And we have a, a, um, a roadside fruit stand in Canada. So we have a social media. If you want to follow at Hoffman Orchards, you'll find it. But I, I, I wrote lyrics to what, Ice Ice Baby for cherry, selling cherries. <laughs> okay, you ready? I know. Okay. All right. Okay. And if there's any dancers in the room, you know. Oh, they, want, they just want me to wait for some yeah, sure. video. Yeah, sure. It's got a long intro. Okay, ready? Come on. <laughs> it's really long. We got to at least go like. Okay, I got to get it. Josh. Come on, boys. Embarrassing, but sort of not. Yo, stop. Pull over and listen. I got. What you've been missing, cherries. Grab a hold of them tightly, eat them all up daily and nightly. Should you ever stop, yo? I don't know, plant a pit in the ground. Might grow to the extreme. You rock the stand like some vandals. Light up your day like a room full of candles. Cherries. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Well, thanks to your team, because I wouldn't have known that information. For, you know, I won't say who, though. I found it out. <laughs> peach one queued up for this summer but you have to like next time next time thank you so much Thanks jackie for coming, everybody. i've got to wrap it up i've spilled my straw <laughs> soda and everything thank you so much jackie appreciate it thank you for attending today as well All right. Thanks for hanging out with us, everybody. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Swell Podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe. And if you did enjoy the podcast, please be sure to leave a review uh, and get involved in the conversation on all the major socials at The Swell Pod. We'll see you next time. Thank you.